Well, we're going to continue in our teaching series this morning in 1 Corinthians. I, I think that's going to be a broken record. We're going to be in it for a while, so just about every Sunday you'll hear me say that, and we've been calling it Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church, and uh, in the previous section, which was chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, it was the rest of chapter 2, essentially, Paul described the character, communicator, and complication of true wisdom in an effort to dissuade the Corinthians from trying to find true wisdom in any other place, like at the Acropolis where all the eloquent philosophers, pagan philosophers met and shared their ideas. Just look, uh, he's trying to dissuade them. You do not need to go anywhere other than your local church where you have faithful ministers of the gospel because they are the ones who are proclaiming God's true wisdom. And so, and they were fascinated with what was going on in their culture and community and just too much interest in what was being said at the Acropolis. And according to the text that we studied pretty deeply, um, true wisdom, it does come from God alone. Its communicator is the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have any complications, but there are complications that are associated with it. And the complication that is associated with it is essentially the fact that only believers or true believers can understand it. Only true believers can, can discern true wisdom. You have to have the Spirit of God to understand the wisdom of God. And so that was Paul's real big point in the previous section Going elsewhere for true wisdom is a futile effort. It is only given by God through the Spirit, and it is only given unto or to believers. In the next section, Paul continues to admonish or correct the Corinthians for producing carnal unity in the church, because that's what the first four chapters are entirely about. And what he does in this next section is he identifies the source of their troubles. Like he, he pins down what the, the underlying cause of all their trouble is. He, he nails that and he talks about the symptoms that, that, that are produced from them. And then he also talks about the solution that could help to bring them back to biblical unity because they don't have that right now. They're divided and battling over who their favorite teachers are and a plethora of other issues. And it's just a messy, disunified church where the peace of God is hard to find and there isn't any unity. And so Paul's going to talk about the source and the symptoms and the solution that could help to bring them back. There's a number of things they would need to do that could bring them back. But here he does present at least one solution. If you would be so kind as to please take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians we're starting in chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. And I would like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we just ask now that you settle our hearts and our minds and, and calm us. The world and, and things around us, even our flesh, have had a profound effect on us in the last week. And... Um, it's easy to, to step into this sacred moment with the world and the flesh and all these things on our minds. And, and Lord, to essentially not be able to hear what you want to say to us or what you desire to say to us through your word today. And so, Lord, we pray that the distractions would be set aside. I don't even think that's something that we can do. When I'm distracted, I just can't stop being distracted. But I believe it is something that the Holy Spirit can do for us. And so we call upon you. 
Holy Spirit to help us now, to help us focus, to open our, our ears and our minds and our hearts to the word, to true wisdom, and to not just hear, but to believe, and to not just believe, but to do the word, to do the word. And so help us this morning, teach us from your word Give us the example of the Corinthians, which is an example that goes so far beyond them. It's to every Christian for all time and every church, including RHC. So just teach us from your word today. Help us to focus and be glorified. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as you've noticed, I'm giving you some S's. We can pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our first one, and it is... The source of their troubles, I already mentioned this, the source of their troubles, we see this in verses 1 to 3a, and we'll pick back up in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. This is what Paul says next. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, bear in mind, in the immediate context, he's just talked about what natural people are like and what spiritual people are like. And now he is giving probably one of the most, it's, I wouldn't call it a harsh rebuke, but it is a hard rebuke. Just imagine that some faithful brother in Christ or sister in Christ in your life comes to you and says, you know, I desire to address you as a spiritual person because that's what you are and that's what you're supposed to be. But I can't do that right now because that's not how you're acting. That's not how you're behaving. To be called by the Apostle Paul, who is a fellow brother in Christ, a person of the flesh, can you get any more difficult or challenging or harder than that? Is that the desire of a, of a Christian to, to be a person of the flesh or to be a person of the spirit? If, if I were to hear this, and it has been said to me, believe it or not, I don't feel good about myself when I hear this. I need to, I need to, I need to reflect. I need to study myself. I need, I need to figure out what is going on here. Why have I triggered that kind of response? I need to analyze my heart and my behavior. Because essentially the behavior comes from the heart. This is heavy. To talk about and to teach them about what it means to be a spiritual person and to say, I can't even address you as such. And what he's essentially telling us is that the source of their troubles, according to Paul, was what? Their flesh. It was their flesh. They were behaving like people of the flesh rather than people or spiritual people, I should say. And as a rebuke, he just simply addresses them as such. I can't call you this. I have to call you this. The Greek word for flesh is sarkinos, and it's usually used in the New Testament to describe human nature or something that's typical of human behavior, or it's sometimes used to describe people who are still worldly, people who are still worldly, Christians who are still worldly. And that's what, is, that, that's what our text denotes. That's the meaning of it. You're people of the flesh, you're people of the world, you're acting like people of the world. That's what he's saying. They're acting like 
people who aren't spiritual but more natural, that they don't have the spirit, they don't have true wisdom, they don't, they haven't been, con, 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 they're not being conformed to the image of Christ, they haven't been converted by the spirit, they're acting like their previous life, the life that they lived prior to coming to know Christ through the gospel. They were acting like people who are still in the world. Well, who is still in the world? Unbelievers. Now, this rebuke here, it's heavy, and it really helps to shape our understanding of what Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or stupid to him. That statement back in that chapter, we shouldn't see this as a mere statement of fact or something like that, but as a warning to the Corinthians. Since they were operating as people of the flesh, Paul was in a sense saying, be careful not to see my spiritual admonitions as folly, the true wisdom of God coming through me, like natural people would do. For I am imparting to you and sharing with you the very things of the Spirit of God. You see, when a, when a believer gets himself or herself entangled kind of in the world and kind of develops a, a worldly mentality and a mindset and, and they're, they're kind of suppressing the, the, the spirit in a sense and grieving the spirit in a sense, when, when a faithful brother comes along and, and lovingly admonishes them and says, look, here's what's happening, guess what the response is? I don't want to hear it. That's the response. And, and that's what he's saying back in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person doesn't care about the things that I am saying. Be careful because you're spiritual people. You should take these admonitions at face value and apply them. That's what he's saying. Now, it is important for us to note that their flesh was not just the, it didn't just cause the carnal unity. Right? That, that, that's the immediate context. We're talking about carnal unity where they have disunity and they're rallying over their favorite teachers and pummeling each other with their pride and favorite teachers and preferences and all of this bull and nonsense. That's the immediate context. But, and, that, and what's driving all of that is their flesh, but the flesh is the culprit for all of the bad behavior in this book. It is the flesh, our flesh, that is the culprit. We do have three adversaries, according to Ephesians 2. We have the world, the devil, and the flesh. And I'll tell you what, I, do more, I get more entangled and do more battle with my own flesh. I don't even know if I've ever squared off with Satan. I wouldn't want to. I know I've battled the world, but it's my, my flesh that is kind of drawn to the world. So my, my primary foe that I'm always battling is this. And it is the cause of all of our trouble, and it is the cause of all of their trouble, the flesh. The flesh is, is selfishness and pride and all of the negative things that you can think of that would be associated with the flesh. They were operating in the flesh, not just in terms of church unity, but in just about every area of their life. Their sexuality, their views on marriage, their practice of liberty, their celebration of communion, their use of their glorious, amazing spiritual gifts, their, even their theology of the resurrection, their, their giving, all of these aspects of their life and ministry were being negatively impacted, tainted by their flesh. Everything, not just their unity. 
They had transformed the sanctified holy things of the Spirit of God into sinful, unholy things of the world. That's at least what they were attempting to do. Their carnal response to all these grace gifts grieved the Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. They were being unfaithful stewards of the grace given them, 1 Peter 4.10. Making it worse, they boast about all this fleshly ridiculousness. They boasted about it. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, a guy is, 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 you know, it's like locker room talk. He's talking about how he, he slept with his mother-in-law. And, and instead of the men saying, you should leave the church or I'm calling the elders or you need to repent and stop doing this, they're like, hey, all right. That, that, that's the kind of nonsense that was happening in the locker room at Davis High School about 10,000 years ago for me. By the way, I was in there throwing away towels. I didn't play on any teams because I was too skinny. <laughs> That's locker room talk, and, 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 and you have it here in, 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 in God's church. Carnal, human, disgusting, wicked, sinful behavior, and instead of it being rebuked, because if it had been rebuked properly, we probably wouldn't have this letter. But the good people of God in this church were not taking care of the business that they needed to take care of. And maybe they just couldn't. I don't know. There were some nasty, stupid, fleshly things happening in this body. Now, I do suspect that the Corinthian church repented of its fleshly attitudes, its fleshly ways, soon after receiving probably, certainly this letter, and most definitely after receiving the second letter, which wasn't as heavy, I, I think that they probably repented. Because I think if they, if they hadn't repented, then John would have been instructed to write about the Corinthian church in the first three chapters of Revelation. Because he wrote about the church at Ephesus and Thyatira and Pergamum, and that's the hit list. Write these things down, John. These are some churches that have lost their first love. They're engaging in the, in the attitude and behavior of Jezebel. And if you know anything about her from the Old Testament, that's never good. I'll tell you what, if they hadn't repented, there wouldn't be seven churches mentioned there. There'd be eight. And I think Corinth was worse than all of them, even the lukewarm Laodicea. I think they repented. And there is no church in that territory these days, so the repentance didn't. Their lampstand was snatched up, so to speak. I want you to note the detail at the end of verse 1. Uh, this, is just, this is just an assault on their pride as infants in Christ. Wow. You know, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years. If somebody calls me an infant... I, I probably better perform a self-check. Infants in Christ. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's unwilling to go all the way and just anathematize or just curse this body altogether. You're just a bunch of pagans. He didn't want to do that. He was convinced that that had some true believers there. He had seen the spirit move in power when he planted the church. Probably heard some good reports as well as the bad ones. He had witnessed many, many conversions point is, is that you are, I can't really address you as spiritual people. That's not how you're acting. 
But he's not willing to go any further and just say that I think you're outside of the fold altogether. And here's the gospel again. He doesn't do that. He just says, now he says, to kind of buffer what he said, because what he said originally was very harsh. Now he's saying, you're, just, you're acting like infants in Christ, which is certainly better than being a natural person, because the natural person is outside of the body. He just couldn't address them as mature spiritual men and women, because that's not how they behaved. They acted like baby believers. Those born again yesterday, mere infants in Christ. And that is how we start out. We start out, we don't know much. We just know Jesus died and bore our sin and, 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 and we're, we're submitting to him and trusting in him and, and we, we start to gain this conviction and we start to see our lifestyle and it, it frightens us. But some of these behavioral things that marked us prior to that, these characteristics, they just kind of continue on for a bit. And then we eventually kill a great many of them off, and then, you know, 10 years later, we like to resurrect them. Come back to me, flesh, right? I don't understand it. So he goes from saying, I can't treat you as spiritual people, which is really, really hard, to saying, you're very, very, very slightly spiritual, like a spiritual infant in Christ. MacArthur, we're going to be quoting him quite a few times. He's got good stuff. Paul could not speak to the Corinthian believers as spiritual men. They had come through the door of faith, but had gone no farther. Most of them had received Jesus Christ years later or years earlier, but were acting as if they had just been born again. They were still babes in Christ. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Since the Corinthians were acting immaturely in the faith, and since Paul had led them to Christ initially... He saw himself as a kind of spiritual father to the church, and this is why he calls them infants in Christ. And this is why he continues in the next line, or next two lines, he uses a parenting metaphor. You know, when you, if you should be there when the Lord brings someone to true faith, and you're there, and you're an, an instrument that God uses with the gospel, it, you're not the spiritual parent of that person. God is. He's the father. But in a way... You're the family member that God used to share the gospel with them. And so you are that initial disciple or a discipler or something like that. You can be seen as a, an elder spiritual brother or sister. And Paul kind of sees himself as a dad. And it's not wrong. He's not trying to take a title away from the father or the son or the spirit. I think he's just trying to communicate true wisdom to them in such a way that it relates and they get it. Now we look at verses 2 to 3a. I fed you, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. This is another double-barrel shotgun blast. You've been a Christian for a while, and this guy tells you that, you know, I, I can't give you meat, I can barely give you milk. You want meat? Here's some fish sticks. They're Gordons, so they're real fish, unlike, you know, Subway's tuna. This is, this is insane what he's saying. When Paul first preached to the Corinthians back a while back before, when he came and rolled through that territory, he did teach them the more easily digestible elementary truths of doctrine. He says the milk. But now, some five years later, 
they still needed to be fed milk. <laughs> they could not yet spiritually digest solid food, is what Paul is teaching them and us. Now, MacArthur's commentary on verse 2 is just, really on 2 and 3a, it's just face melting. It is. He wrote, now, now listen carefully. Like many Christians today, the Corinthians seemed quite content to stay on milk. Some congregations do not want the pastor to get too deep. Their fleshly habits are not much threatened if, for instance, the preacher sticks primarily to evangelistic messages. Or the congregation wants scripture to be preached so superficially that their sin is not exposed, much less rebuked and corrected. For a Christian preacher or teacher to give only milk week after week, year after year, is a crime against the word of God and against the Holy Spirit. Cannot be done without neglecting much of the word and without neglecting the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit, the supreme teacher and illuminator. It is also a terrible disservice to those who hear whether or not they are satisfied with having only milk. The appetite must be created. Nothing is more precious or wonderful than a little baby. But a 20-year-old with the mind of an infant is heartbreaking. A baby who acts like a baby is a joy, but an adult who acts like a baby is a tragedy. I, I don't... I, that is the best commentary I've ever seen on this verse. And he's not really... I mean, he's talking about the Corinthians, but he's talking about us. He's talking about the church today. Man, and, and here's the trick. Here's the thing. Because right now you could be thinking, well, then it, it's certainly just got to be the fault of all these preachers who just don't take their people deep enough in these things. And I, I think that that's part of it. But it's not all of it, especially in Corinth. In fact, that wasn't the case at all in Corinth. The Corinthian church was not vacuous of sound expository preaching. They had Apollos, who was a beast in the pulpit. They had, of the churches that existed in that day, they had one of the best preachers of all. They had the MacArthur. They had the Paul Washer. They had the Spurgeon. So you cannot blame this issue or problem on a vacuous, empty, soft, my little pony, tandem bike riding, matching sweater, flowing hair pulpit. <laughs> Skinny jean, you know. You can't. You can't do it. Apollos was a wonderful, wonderful brother and preacher. The trouble wasn't with the preaching. The trouble was with the congregation. These brother and sister believers were fleshly and did not put into practice what they were learning. They heard the word, but they were not doers of the word. James 1, 22. A person who does not use information, guess what? They will lose it. And spiritual truth is no exception at all. Spiritual truths that we ignore and neglect will become less and less remembered, less and less meaningful to us. 
This is what was happening in Corinth. They didn't put into practice the word. Therefore, they forgot what they learned. And this kept them in a, a perpetual state of spiritual infancy. You see, we, we put such an emphasis on preaching, and, and I think we should, but we don't put enough emphasis on listening and applying and living the word. Listen, there is no spiritual progression apart from spiritual performance. And I'm not talking about performing for your justification. That's lock, stock, done through faith alone. I'm talking about taking what you learn and what you hear and performing with it, applying it, living it. There's no progression without us performing, without us obeying, without us applying. Active obedience. You stop and think about it. Since true saving faith is alive, James 2.17, it must be lived. Do I need to repeat that? Since true saving faith is alive, it is not dead. Because if it's dead, it's not true saving faith. If you have true saving faith, the Spirit has imparted this grace gift to you. It is a faith that will be and must be lived. You will live it out. You can't help yourself. You have to do it. So the Christian life is not just about learning doctrine. It is equally about practicing doctrine. It is not just about orthodoxy. It is about orthopraxy, living out the orthodoxy, taking the orthodox truths of Scripture, of the Christian faith, 2,000 years of history, not just hearing them, not just believing them, not just rejoicing in this knowledge, but putting this knowledge wisely into practice, living it. We learn, we do. We learn, we do. But see, the Corinthians were, they learn, they learn some more, and learn some more, and then forgot what they learned, and forgot what they learned, and then committed heinous fleshly acts and rejoiced over them, which sounds more like the Davis locker room than a church. The believer who hears the word but doesn't do the word is like a man who glances in the mirror, walks away, and then quickly forgets what he looks like. James chapter 1, 23 to 24. In other words, looks in the mirror, turns around, and forgets who he is. After shaving my beard off this last week, that's exactly what I've been attempting to do every time I look in the mirror. It sounded like a good idea at the moment. And then I did it, and I was like trying to tape the hair back on. The believer, but the believer who not only hears the word, but also does the word, James says in chapter 1, verse 25, he or she will be blessed in their doing. 
you know, five years in, this church is five years old. I'm talking about Corinth. Ours is 10. Five years in, and the Corinthians were still milk-dependent spiritual babies. Why? Crud teaching? No. They weren't applying the word, man. They were hearing it and not doing it, not living it out. That's why. They did not practice what was preached. Years ago, my old pastor and friend Rick Countryman over at Big Valley, he told me about a complaint he was receiving from a bunch of folks at, at Big Valley. And they were upset that he, you know, that they were saying to him, and I, I, I hope they weren't just saying it because it would be brutal to just say this, but what they were trying to tell him was that, you know, you don't take us deep enough in the word, and we would like you to take us deeper in the word. And, you know, of all the big churches and senior pastors that could be out there, you know, I got, I got to give Big Valley and I got to give Rick some credit because, you know, the guy does have a sense of what's going on around him and he's familiar with the congregation and he, he knows what people are doing. I mean, he doesn't know what everyone's doing, you know, but he, he, he's not completely disconnected from the reality of Big Valley. And so he gets these complaints and of course, you know, what a kind of a cruel thing to say, right, to your pastor. But his response was so Paul-like, it's not even funny. It's almost as if when Rick responded, he was remembering this text. Do you know what he said? I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. When you can start not just hearing, but living out the elementary truths I've been teaching you for many, many years, like coming to church regularly, like giving faithfully, like serving sacrificially, you know, doing the things that normal even baby believers do. I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. When you start applying the elementary truths that I've been teaching you and others here have been teaching you, then we'll talk about going deeper. Well, I'm just going to go to a different church. Bye. This is what Paul is saying. This is, this is what he's saying here. This is, Paul, he's, he's using a countryism, countrymanism. Or better yet, countrymen was using a Paulism. You know, and this, this is what happens when immature believers reduce the Christian life down to some kind of learning exercise. Don't get me wrong, learning is important, theology is essential, but so is doing the word. Jesus did not say, if you love me, you will know my commandments. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Big difference. John 14, 16. Love for Jesus is expressed to Jesus, not through mere knowledge. Knowledge is important but also through obedience to his commands. Look again at the second half of verse 2. 
In the beginning of verse 3, he says, even now you are not ready, for you are still in the flesh. The inference we can draw from this part of Paul's admonition is that the Corinthians were calling out for spiritual meat, sending him emails. We don't think you take us deep enough. Can you go a little deeper? Can you throw some theological tri-tips on the old smoker for us? Because we're ready, Paul. Here's a bottle of Ephemil. Here's some banana Similac. Enjoy. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. Mm. Here's, a, here's a high chair. Here's a bib. Here's a bottle. Get to work. what he's saying he's not trying to be cruel he's not trying to be mean he's just trying to bring these people back to reality so the source of the corinthians trouble was what their flesh instead of living as spiritual people they were behaving like outsiders people of the flesh let's move to that second s number two the symptoms that flowed from their flesh verses three b to four For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Mm. The symptoms that flowed from their flesh were obviously jealousy and strife. Jealousy is the attitude. Strife is the action that results from that inner attitude of jealousy. Jealousy is the inner emotional condition. Strife is the outward expression of it. Those two problems are representations of the many, many, many symptoms of the flesh. What word picture do you think Paul was seeking to paint here? He calls the Corinthians infants in Christ. He describes how he can only give them milk. And then he chastises them for being jealous and strifeful. The word picture is of two little self-centered children, two vipers in diapers, fighting over a toy or some other object like the box the toy came in. This is the word picture that he has here. You guys are infants. I, I, I have to give you milk. I can't get you meat. You have strife. You, 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 you have disunity, jealousy, strife. You're battling over each other. I see two kids in a playpen hitting each other over the head with a tonka. That's the word picture. But instead of battling over some baby toy or something else, like some kitchen utensil, don't give your kid a ladle or something. They'll clock you. Instead of battling over something like that, these baby believers were battling over their favorite preacher teachers. I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos. Hmm. Infants are naturally jealous and strifeful, right? They are. They're self-centered. But this should not be typical of an adult, especially a Christian adult. It is spiritually infantile to be jealous and to cause strife among fellow believers. When we harbor jealousy in our hearts and then create strife between us and other brothers and sisters, Paul says... We are of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. 
In other words, we're not being spiritual people. We're being people of the flesh. That's what the human way is. It is natural. It is unspiritual. It is unenlightened, unregenerate. 1 Corinthians 2.14. When we boast about following this guy or that guy, we are being merely human, as Paul says. If we boast at all, and I don't think boasting is good at all, but if we do it at all, we are to boast in the Lord, and that's it. 1 Corinthians 1.31. MacArthur, again, he says, and I think this one's in your bulletin, when a congregation develops loyalties around individuals, it is a sure symptom of the flesh, spiritual immaturity, and trouble. You know, we just need to draw a distinction right now. There is a massive difference between, between loyalty and support. Our loyalty belongs to God. He is our Lord and Savior in Christ Jesus. He alone deserves this highest level of commitment, this highest level of devotion, this highest level of loyalty. He is loyal to us. We reciprocate. We are loyal to him. That's our operating system. We are not to give this kind of loyalty to individuals in the church. When members of a congregation lead... Now, now listen to this example. And I really thought about this, about saying this, but I have a, I have a real example, real world, real time. When members of a congregation leave their home church to follow a morally disqualified pastor who now says God is telling me to plant a church up the road, this is not loyalty to God. This is loyalty to man. There, I said it, and some of you know what I'm talking about. There are legitimate reasons for leaving a church. There are. Church becomes apostate, get out of there. The church doesn't discipline its members, leave. The church divides over, over non-essential doctrinal issues like eschatology, it's time to go. There are legitimate reasons to leave a church. If the church is absolutely obsessed with their preacher, thank God that's never happened to here. All I have to do is shave my beard and you lose love for me. <laughs> if, if that happens, it's time to call people out. And if it's literally an obsession and this person is exalted and there's pictures of him all over the church, which I've seen in town at a church, time to go. Time to go. There are legitimate reasons to leave. But following your favorite pastor is probably not one of them. Especially if he was recently removed or forced to resign because of moral failure. You know what that pastor and I should say that ex-pastor needs, because there is such thing as an ex-pastor. Not in today's church age, no. A guy fails morally, cheats on his wife, and two years he's back in the pulpit. That man should never step in another pulpit. He's done. Paul talked about, I do not want to be disqualified from my ministry. There are things that can take a minister out for good. That doesn't mean that God can't use that person in another capacity if he repents, gets the help he needs, whatever, goes through the disciplinary process, the restoration process. Somebody's removed. 
you don't just leave Seattle and go to Phoenix and start another church. And all these people. Why? Well, we're trying to be loyal to God. No, you're not. You're being loyal to talent. You're being loyal to flesh. What the pastor who fails morally or in any other capacities removed or resigns, what he needs is our prayers. He doesn't need our time, talent, treasure at his new pole barn or building. In some ways, that's to spare the man the rod that he deserves and needs for his own good, just to keep supporting and supporting and supporting. Well, I like his teaching. Well, so did I. I, I've said this so many times from this pulpit, and it's just not understood. God is not concerned about our happiness. He's concerned about our holiness. Therefore, we must take sin seriously. We must. We must, as Owen said, kill it or it will be killing us. So there is a difference between being loyal, and I've talked about that. We're loyal to God only. Does that, say, does that mean I'm not loyal to my wife and my marriage? Of course I am. That's being loyal to God too. There's a difference between being loyal to God. There's a difference between that and being supportive of a pastor. Believers should support faithful pastors through prayer and other means. They ought to give to the Lord generously so as not to muzzle the ox because he who labors in the gospel is worth his wage and should get his living by the gospel. That's not me saying, hey, tithe more. That's an imperative from Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18, 1 Corinthians 9.14. I need your support but I need you to stay loyal to your God. Being loyal to God means that, that you might be forced to make difficult decisions concerning those whom you support in ministry because we are all one inch away from slipping and falling into disastrous sin. This is why Paul said you boast about how strong you are. Be careful where you stand. We're, we're all just one decision away from catastrophe, especially me. I need your support. I need your prayers. I need your encouragement. But give your devotion and loyalty to the one who bore your sin. Don't give it to me. I won't even know what to do with it. I'll get a puffed up head. You'll ruin me. I'll ruin me. The symptoms that flowed from the Corinthians' flesh were jealousy and strife, and that produced every issue and problem in this church. And in this immediate context, it is the carnal unity that resulted in massive division. 
in a divided church is blasphemous because we do not serve a divided Lord. Let's move to the third and final S. The solution that could help bring them back to biblical unity. We see this in the rest of our text. Verses 5 to 9. We'll start at 5. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. The solution Paul presents is centered on a proper biblical understanding or perspective concerning preachers, teachers, and God himself. He sets up his argument with a rhetorical question in verse 5a. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Among the Corinthians, Apollos and Paul were touted as you know, specific club leaders along with Cephas and Jesus. They are, hey, Jesus is the head of my little clan and Paul is the head of my little group and we're Paulites and we're Cephasites and we're Apollosites and we're Christites. And to them, that's the perspective, the attitude they had. I'm following Paul. I'm following Apollos. I'm, I'm following Cephas. So yeah, we're better than all of you. We're following Jesus. But well, we learned when we got to that text in chapter 1, this is a distorted Jesus. It's not, it is the Lord Jesus, but it is a wrong view of the Lord Jesus. In verse 5b, the apostle refutes this goofy, silly perspective by telling them precisely who Apollos and Paul are. Servants! <laughs> the Greek word for servants is, is diakonos. And it's sometimes translated as ministers. In John chapter 2, verse 5, it is used in reference to the waiters at the wedding at Cana. I love that. Waiters. Garson. Right? Yes, more bread. We're going to eat, drink, and be merry. Get the bill. I don't feel good. It's used as waiters, literally. He says, we are servants, and then he says, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. In other words, we are servants who shared the gospel with you, the gospel in which you now trust or believe. That's what we are, servants who ministered the gospel to you. You know, the gospel that you believe, you know, the, the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sins, your new life in him, passing from death to, uh, to death to life and from darkness to light, you know, the gospel. We're just ministers of that, that good old gospel. That's what we are as uh, Paul's main point here is really simple. Think about what he's doing here logically. Are servants to be honored with this level of esteem and to be followed? You can answer. Are we to honor servants of the Lord? Sure. Do we honor them with the level of devotion? Do we... And Paul even says at one point, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So you're not just following me. If you follow me, you're following Christ because I'm following him. But, but just think about what he's saying here. I think that the worker is worth his wage. I think that, you know, honor is due. When it's due, it should be given. I get that. We want to honor our servants at the church. But, but do our servants, do we as servants, do we deserve that high, high, high level of esteem? 
Should we be the target to be followed? No. The master deserves it. The master, not the servant, the master. This is why he says servants. You have a master and you are following us servants as if we are the masters. We are not your masters. We are servants. This is what he's saying. If I'm in the audience while this letter's being read at Corinth, I'm like, whoa! We, we have a distorted view here. We've exalted Apollos. We don't see him just as a servant. He's kind of like our master, and that's not what we're supposed to be doing. That's the point. The master alone deserves this kind of admiration, this kind of focus, this kind of boasting, this kind of following. Not the servants. The Bible presents our relationship to Jesus in a great many ways as a marriage, as the body with a head, us being the body, him being the head, and one of my favorites as doulos and kyrios. Doulos is the Greek word for slave. Kyrios is the Greek word for master. We are the slaves, and Jesus is our all-loving, benevolent master. To ascribe the master's privileges to fellow slave servants is idolatry. It is to exalt the creature rather than the creator. That's what it is. And it's so tragic and sad that you see this happening all across the world, especially across our nation, with this obsession with these super pastors. Hmm. MacArthur once again says, Paul was saying, in effect, no one builds a movement around a waiter or busboy. Apollos and I are just waiters or busboys whom the Lord used as servants to bring you food. You do not please us by trying to honor us. Your honor, your glory is misplaced. You are acting like the world, like mere men. Because what does the world do? What do men of the world do? Celebrate other men. They don't celebrate and honor God. They celebrate themselves and they celebrate other creatures. They worship other creatures. Romans 1. Notice with me the sovereignty highlighting detail at the end of verse 5. As the Lord assigned to each. It was as if Paul was saying, the master assigned and sent us servants to you. He did this in his sovereignty. We came to you because of him. Therefore, all glory, praise, and honor must go to the sender, not the sent. Honor the master who sent us, not us servants. Verses 6 to 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. To further shape this proper biblical perspective of how we should view the preachers and teachers and stuff, and even Paul saying that about the apostles, what does Paul do? He employs a farming metaphor. He and Apollos are servants who tend God's field, who tend God's building, essentially. Paul planted the seeds of the gospel through preaching. Apollos watered the soil through expository teaching. And God alone gave the growth, thus bringing the Corinthians to faith through the Holy Spirit. 
Therefore, the planter and the waterer aren't the special ones. God can assign any believer to be a planter or a waterer. Anybody can do. God could, God could raise up rocks to be his worshipers. He don't need me. He's not dependent on me. I'm dependent on him. He can have any believer. He can convert a person and, and, and train them and teach them. He can take the worst enemy of Christ and convert them and train them and teach them like they did with Saul, a.k.a. Paul. He don't need me. He can have anyone do this. Therefore, I'm not the special one. Paul is not the special one. Cephas is not the special one. Apollos is not the special one. The special one is the one who causes the growth. God himself. Apart from God, the garden of faith does not exist. It's just dead ground with weeds and stubble. It's just cursed. Genesis 3, 17. That's what the ground is without God working. Paul is saying, give all the glory to the divine grower, not to the human field workers. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. That's verse 8 and 9. Now, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to swing the pendulum too far by developing a negative perspective of their preachers and teachers, right? Because once you condemn that kind of fleshly attitude and behavior toward them, the next thing you can know is, is instead, the next thing that can happen is instead of you being convicted and dealing with yourself and killing that attitude and behavior in you, you can start to look at the pastors differently and say, well, they're bad. Well, they're not bad. They're not exalting themselves. You exalted them. You're the one that needs to deal with you. And what Paul does is he, he tries to stop them here from going too far with us. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to dishonor and disrespect and disobey Apollos or anyone who's preaching in that church. He doesn't want them, them to misread him. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so what he does is he... He basically counters the negative perspective. He, the, 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 the kind of the negative connotation surrounding the preachers, he kind of counters that with a, with a more positive one in verse, verses 8 and 9. He is saying that those who labor in God's field, they're not to be the cherished, honored ones. That belongs to God alone. But they're worth their wage. They'll get their reward. God will reward them, and he'll do it through you. That's what he's saying. Don't go too far. God is the one who rewards his laborers. A church does not need to go out of its way to shower every imaginable blessing and exalted thing to its ministers. And that's what was happening here. We had some that were more talented than others, and they just got exalted and exalted. You know what? God is the one who rewards his ministers. And the way that you're rewarding him is not the way that God would do it. That's what Paul is saying. And believe it or not, God does this through the church. 
But his rewards to his faithful ministers look nothing like what the Corinthians were doing at all. He doesn't exalt ministers. He doesn't give them followers. He doesn't grant rock star status. Churches do this, not him. People in churches, in the flesh, do this. It's not God who does that. God's goal is always to make much of his son, not of his servants. He cares for his servants. He rewards their faithful service. But his goal through the Holy Spirit is the exaltation of Christ, not Phil. He makes a lot of his son out of his servants, but he will take care of his servants. He will meet their true needs through the body of Christ. Therefore, the church needs divine wisdom from Scripture so it can know the mind and will of God regarding this very important issue. A church that gets its marching orders from the world will go way beyond what is required and end up creating a self-indulgent glory hog who will eventually fall and bring shame to the name. You know, sometimes we, we see these preachers on TV or we hear about them and we say, gosh, you know, this, this is ridiculous. Look at him. How did he get like this? Okay, stop and pan your eyes over to the audience because that's how he got like that. They did that to him, and he allowed it. Shame on both of them. Well, gee, you know, another, another pastor bites the dust this week. I read about it on, on Not the Bee or something like that. Another one goes down. Is it any surprise when these megachurch pastors fall? They were never designed for that kind of pressure. Never called to that. And they crumble and they fall morally. And we say, what a shame. They're disgracing the name. That congregation and that elder board bears some responsibility too because they're the ones that raised him up and put him on that pedestal. No minister has an audience without the audience. No minister has fame without the audience. It's a tragedy. And what is happening is that churches don't understand the mind and will of God regarding its ministers, and then you have all of this imbalance, and then you have these falls, and they do disgrace the name. But the disgracing of the name began when they started exalting the guy, not just when he fell. You get your marching orders from the world, this is what you do. You try to turn men into saviors. That's what we do. We should love and care for God's fellow workers, but we worship and follow King Jesus. That is it. What is the solution that can help, could help to bring them back, can help to bring us back to biblical unity? If something like this were to happen, what could help to bring us back? Give the grower what he rightfully deserves. All honor, praise, and glory. Full allegiance. And give God's fellow workers what they rightfully deserve. Their wages, your prayers, and your encouragements. If we maintain these distinctions... Our churches can enjoy peace and unity. If we abandon them, we become carnal Corinth. Verse 